Welcome to our inaugural first episode of Seat 41A, a podcast with three random MSCs that are just going through our esteemed Air Force Medical Service Corps Corps Chief Brigadier General Flowers' reading list. We pick a book every month and just uh, dissect it, talk about it, discuss it, and how we can best use it in our daily lives. I'm uh, Captain Manoj Rima. I'm currently stationed at Advanced Air Force Base, and my two uh, co-hosts, Captain Christopher Foote and Major Gregory Taylor, are with me. Uh, we'll periodically have special guests once in a while, hopefully, that also are with us to talk about their perspective on a book or a certain topic that we have that month. And that's pretty much it. I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> I'm keeping that in. That? I'm keeping that. <laughs> that should be the intro. That should yeah. be the with the intro music. I'm Ron Burgundy. Just very quietly, so it's subtle, and it just and we know it's there. Are the kids still quoting Anchorman these days? I don't know. I think that that movie came out in the early 2000s. Easy does it. Easy and the second one came it. out in 2014, I think. 20 long ago. Anyway, well. So, Getting to Yes, Negotiating Agreement Without Getting In, Giving In by Robert, Roger Fisher. And <laughs> Take Wayne two, try again. <laughs> All right, can't speak. <clears throat> You're going to have your hands full with the audio editing. Let's just go ahead and throw that out there. This is our first go round, so please, everyone who is listening, have some grace. <laughs> it's supposed to be trash, though, because then we've got nowhere to go. But uh, that's true. At, you know, that's how, that's how an MSC thinks, right there. Yeah. <laughs> say, embrace, embrace your former second lieutenant self. Like, <laughs> it can't get any more amateur than it is right now. That's right. Well, me and Manoj, we're not real far from our second lieutenant days. So. <laughs> the international bestseller, Getting to Yes, Negotiating Agreement Without Giving In by Roger Fisher and William Uri. Uri? Uri? I'm going to go with Uri. Yeah. Uri? Okay. You really sound like a book on tape. Can I just say that? Thank you. Yeah, it's really good. I have I have the I have the face and the voice. Ah, for radio. you beat me to it! Yeah, oh, yeah. come on! Classic joke. Um. <laughs> Next thing you're going to tell me is that uh, you would never want to join a club that would have you as a member. Oh, right in the field. I get no respect. <laughs> All right, so this book, I I I downloaded it or I rented the ebook originally from the DOD MWR library thing that they do for free, which is awesome. Yeah, um, shout out, shout out. Um, and I only made it about a third of the way through before my, my rental expired. And so then I bought the book because I couldn't re-rent it. There was a, <laughs> there was a wait list. So in an effort to finish the book, I hadn't bought it, but I, I don't know. I always like the negotiation books because I feel like they're, they're tips and tricks that you can put into use right away. Like you, uh, you know, you're always negotiating in, you know, somewhere in life, you know, negotiating with a family member, negotiating uh, like at a thrift store or something like that. Like you could find, Streets you can find the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> Streets of Korea. Well, 
a little bit harder to find. Yeah, that uh, that that back and forth so much in the U.S. Yeah, but uh, but it does happen definitely at like antique shops or um, you know yard sales stuff like that. It's like two for a dollar, I'll give you a quarter. Like mm, you drive a hard bargain, my friend. Thirty cents and it's yours. Like congratulations, you just bought a new set of golf clubs. Anyway, so I like negotiating books. Uh, so, so I, I like that aspect of it. Uh, I found it entertaining and full of anecdotes too. So, um, yeah, those really are some like, of my first impressions. I really like the examples he gave in this book, and I thought like you know, negotiating books. You think it's just negotiating some kind of purchase usually. At least that's what your mind goes to first. But this was more like negotiating a problem, a lot of like good workplace examples, like politics examples, not just like I need to pay my best price for this car. I guess the first thing at their house, you know, but this is like negotiating a problem between two parties. And that kind of opened up my eyes a little bit on that topic in that area. Chris, as someone who uh, who didn't read the book, what do you think of the title? Yeah, um, it was great. I read the back of the book. I read the sleeves, uh, you know, so. It was progress. Um, no, in, in, in all seriousness. So I, I got a little over halfway done um, with the book. And, and even just in, in that portion of the book, it was really, you know, like what Manoj said, um, you know, you go in thinking negotiation, right? We have this sort of image in our mind of, you know, just two people sitting across the table with each other and just kind of entrenched in, in a position. And, um, you know, that really couldn't have been further from the from the the picture that they they paint in the book um and and about how to sort of attack um interests and not positions um and then you know talking about separating the people from the problems and and we do that you know like Mano said every pretty much every day um so definitely a, a very useful skill um and one that I, I think at least I don't hadn't really thought about or considered you know, that I really use as often as I do. So one thing that's fun about uh, negotiation or, or thinking about negotiation is when, you, when you're deliberately entering into a negotiating situation, right? Um, to just use a real, you know, kind of small town example, you know, when you're going to uh, an antique shop or something like that, you know, you want, you know, this beautiful mahogany credenza that you know your wife has had her eyes on for months or whatever but you're not going to take it for a penny more than like 300 bucks and you rehearse it in your mind like how this conversation is going to go i'm going to say this and they're going to counter offer with this and you go back and forth and it reminds me a lot of being stationed in a foreign country and you know like the 10 to 20 words in that foreign language that i know and I'm about to have a conversation with uh, with a, a local, and and I say to my in my head of oh I'm going to say this and then they're going to say this back to me, and and so I say my first line you know Guten Morgen I'm Birbita, and then they just launch into this whole <laughs> line of of comments that are completely unexpected from my rehearsed conversation and then I completely lost and I just stare at them. Uh, uh, 
and then move on. I feel like in a lot of cases, it's the same with negotiation. It's like, well, I, you know, I offer 70% of the asking price and then they're going to come back with 85 and, you know, maybe I catch the wildcard negotiators more often, but I, I feel like I'm more surprised than it never is a linear track of, you know, we're going to gradually meet towards some sort of equilibrium point on a, on a price point. I love your analogy, and I, I have won more arguments in the shower than uh, I, I think I can count. And you're right, though. It always seems to go that way. We sort of had this conversation in our head, and this is how it's going to go. And this is, and then it just completely unravels within the first two sentences. Um, at least that's my experience. You know, the, the French, God bless the French, they have a, uh, they have a phrase that feeling of coming up with the perfect comeback, but after the conversation's already yeah. over. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation because uh, I'm not I I'm terrible at speaking French, but it's uh, Esprit de l'Escalier, which is uh, like roughly translates into staircase wit. With the thinking being is you're thinking as you're walking down the stairs away from somebody's you know apartment you think of the perfect comeback, but you're already walking down the stairs away from the person. So it's too late to go back and say, you know, you knock on the door again. You're like, aha, yeah, moments passed. Sorry. Well, I was going to ask a question. So the examples we've thrown out a lot of like generic negotiating examples, things that are happening in the outside world, one time situations more or less. But what I found interesting was, when you're trying to negotiate a problem or a situation, and then Chris mentioned at the beginning, like separating the problem from the person. I will say one, that is sometimes pretty hard to do just being a normal human being, especially when you know how the other person is and where they stand and what kind of like leader they are, what kind of person they are. You're like, you're already combining the two. They're doing this because of this. Like, I, I'm trying to get that bias out. And I will, I will 100% say I struggle with that. You but know, that goal, really comes into play. Sorry, I don't mean to ruin your no, job, but that really comes into play, especially when you have a long working history with that person. You know, if you have a, if there's, if there's just a trend of behavior between both parties, not, you know, one or the other, um, that really can impact that sort of bias that you're talking about. Well, so, and, yeah, and that, and that leads into the, uh, the second question part B is like, when you try to negotiate, like, let's say you are having this negotiation, you come to an agreement with somebody wins or somebody loses or both sides win, you still have to see that person and be with that person and work with that person every day. And I don't know how that dynamic can uh, help or change or be for the best later down the road. I've, I've tried to think whenever I got through one of the chapters, I try to think of a situation where I just went through this at work. And there were a lot here um, at the clinic I work at, a lot of situations where you have to negotiate and, and try to find the best solution that works for best the person, the clinic, it was like all more parties, person, clinic, the member, uh, the Air Force, defense health agency. There's a lot of different parties that have to be made happy, more or less, for uh, lack of a better word. And definitely have a hard time trying to figure out the best way to we'll get to yes, where everybody's happy. Uh, I'm trying to, I, I don't know if you guys had any good examples of where you, in the workplace, specifically our workplace and where we work, how you best separated the problem for the person and negotiated a, a good outcome. Um, so it, just me from my personal experience, I don't know that there was always a favorable outcome. So I, I can just tell you like me personally, when it comes to negotiation, I tend to be a little more on the shy side. 
Um, I, I tend to not speak up as much and push back as hard, you know, for whatever reasons, who knows? I, I don't really know why, why that's usually the position that I take, but it is. Okay. You're done with your time now. I'm sorry, Greg. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> He's got, where's the little, you know, ding! move on for, for me in, in one instance, um, when I was deployed, the commander during the deployment was very rigid in the way that he wanted to do business, um, regardless of of his knowledge or understanding of the, the full situation. Uh, so it was always really kind of challenging to have that negotiation because he was very entrenched. So a lot of the parties that I would have to advocate for didn't always get, the solution wasn't always within everyone's best interest. Um, and maybe that's just my lack of understanding from why he was making decisions the way that he was. Uh, but maybe it was also partly because I just wasn't, maybe I wasn't being aggressive enough. I, I just think that in that, in, the, in that situation, it can be extremely challenging uh, because ultimately the commander will have the final say regardless of the, the, the parties involved. Um, and, and that's their burden to bear, right? They have the authority and the responsibility for that. So if they make a bad call, that that is on them and not necessarily on, on us, especially for me, I was in more of a staff role. So um, I didn't have any command sort of authority, um, nor did I want it at that point. So yeah, so I, I don't know if that really answers your question, but... I mean, yeah, you mentioned the rank structure, like how do you get beyond the rank structure? We all wear the uniform and how to how you're trying to convince a uh, possible lieutenant colonel to you know separate separate the problem from the person. Like if you know this person's not the greatest commander or uh, FGO, but you're still trying to work out a, a amicable solution for the problem at hand. But sometimes you just know like they're the problem, like you can't help it, but it's yeah, hard to come up, come, you know, fix that. Yeah. And, and for me in that specific situation, you're right. It was very challenging. And, and so even as we were trying to overcome some of those challenges, um, and they would be ultimately overridden by the commander. We would, for me, I was just constantly going back to to that same issue, um, and and I got my hand slapped a few times for you know continuing to bring them up. But they they were in in what I thought and what I was being told from the field. They were problems that that needed attention. So I felt it was my responsibility to continue to to bring those to the commander's attention. And what they choose to do with that information is is on them. And I have to, again, you know, you have to just sort of look at it from, I don't have all the information. I, I don't sit in all the meetings that that commander is sitting in, and I don't have the same perspective and scope that the commander has. I can just tell him what I see from, from my platform. We'll get what we get, and uh, we'll, we'll try to make do as best we can. So one thing that was definitely at play in your, you know, your deployment, Chris, you know, is, a, is a big part of a good negotiating strategy, right, is that cross-cultural understanding. You know, there it's it's so much more complex of a situation when you know you don't have a U.S.-centric adversary, for lack of a better term, or you know, negotiating partner, because it's more. It, you know, there's so much more than the words. There's the there's the body language. There's the tone. There's mm -hmm. the digging back into my ACSC content here but it's like there's like low context cultures and high context cultures about the japanese culture comes to mind where there's an etiquette that in a lot of ways i think is is unwritten or you just need to know and because nobody explains it to you but if you offend somebody by you know not following the proper protocol 
it's highly destructive to any negotiating that you're planning on doing. Yeah. And and so just for context for the listeners, the deployment that I'm talking about was a NATO deployment, 27 nations represented uh, in, in that AOR specifically. So there was a lot of voices at the table. Um, and, and like Greg said, a, a lot of cultural influence. And so that that is definitely a, a, was a big challenge, especially for me. Um, I was a, a captain filling an 06 slot. So everyone else at the table was an 05, 06 or above. And the commander happened to be a two-star general. So it it was, there was definitely a big power gap there as well. You know, being that he's no, he's normally used to his staff being, uh, you know, 05 and 06 officers. And now he's got a captain uh, and he's a two-star general. So definitely a big power gap there. And, and I could feel it, even if it was just my own perception of that. Um, and I'm sure that that certainly got in the way. Uh, at at times with me wanting to or feeling comfortable speaking up. Yeah, and I wanted to make it clear. I know the book is called Getting to Yes, but it doesn't necessarily mean yes being our way. We got Mm -hmm. it. Like we wanted our answer. Like we wanted our method and our uh, process. But it's more like how can we both both parties get to yes where we actually solve the problem? Um, I feel like I'm having that issue right now where at least on the administrative side, we see a lot of problems that we know need to be fixed or are going to be addressed or someone's going to call us out eventually on. And we try to address it. And it, it's probably not a hot topic at the time for them. It's like, oh, that's fine. This is just the way, you know, the vancisms, the basisms, wherever we're at, we all, we just do it this way. It's like, well, this is not the right way. Um, but until it becomes a problem, then we can start talking about it. And then it gets a little bit more defensive because now it's on someone higher up's radar and it has to be fixed like yesterday. And, and it becomes a little tense. And, you know, some of this book goes into like, if the people are the problem, then, you know, work on the relationship. Well, that could take time working on someone's really, you know, working on a relationship with someone trying to feel them out, see how they work. Like that's just going to take time, which sometimes I know we can all agree. We just don't have, we can't build the relationship as fast as we can and then start fixing the problem. But you know, now I, I haven't figured them out. I don't know who they are exactly. And I can't separate the problem from the, from the person. It's all one problem for me. And then we, once you do figure it out, then you leave your PCS and you're like, well, let's go find some new problems because I'm sure they're going to be they're They're everywhere. You know? So I, I, I was trying to find throughout the book, like just some baseline like methods you could use everywhere without, because I think most of the other layers they talk about involve being somewhere for a while and getting to know them. And I was like, man, this book's great, but I don't know how well it is to use the military. I would love to see or hear about someone's aspect on the military, like where like, hey, yeah, these methods are like sound and they, they work great. I think I think a lot of this stuff is is relevant to to what we do. I think to a certain degree, there was an interesting analogy, and I'm probably going to butcher it. So anybody that hasn't read the book, read the book. I'll reread the book since I only got a little over halfway. What through. a slacker! What I know, slacker. I know. It's I mean, that affet. It's the affet life. Doing that you know? life. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're just you know going to school, getting your master's degree. You yeah, yeah, yeah. Book. No big deal. <laughs> So, but there was an analogy, right? So they they talked a lot about the interests, not positions. Uh, but honestly, for me, that was kind of a, a a challenging concept to understand and really sort of try to relate that to a lot of what we do. Because um, I try to take a similar approach to Humanoge, where I look for examples in in my own personal experiences when I'm reading these books. But anyways, to get to the analogy, you talked about an orange and cutting the orange in half and giving it to 
uh, half to each person. Uh, but the reality of the situation was that one person just wanted the peel um, so they could use it to make a, you know, an orange zest for a recipe, I think is what they said. And then the other person just wanted the actual orange itself, the fruit, I think to juice it or something. And so in, in negotiating and splitting it right down the middle, rather than looking at the interests rather than the positions, both parties actually lost because if if the interest, if they would have sort of rooted down to the interest, we could have said, okay, well, well, actually, I I don't care about the 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 fruit. I just want the peel because I'm using it in a re- in a recipe. Um, they could have got twice as much as what they were given in in the cut it down the middle approach. So I I think focusing on interest that's a challenge and hard to do. So I mean, I I, I don't know. I mean, how do we do that? Especially when you have uh you know we we, we work for a commander. Right. We all have a boss, no matter what level you're at. And so so finding what are those interests and and like Manoj, like you said, is it is it at the wing level? Is it at the group level? Is it at the squadron? Is it at well, Air Force level? I mean, at, at times I feel like I'm just trying to negotiate with other flights, like on a process. It never really gets up to the, the commander level because in theory, we should be as flight commanders. If you sit in that seat, just talk to other flight commanders and work out an issue that we see a gap in. And yeah, you're right. Like, I think people tend to at least human nature is defend their flight. No, no, we're, we're doing it the right way. Like we've been, we've been doing it this way. It works well. We're by the AFI and the D happies. Like you guys are doing it wrong. Like, well, no, like, obviously I think we're all doing the right thing. There's still a glaring gap that needs to be addressed. Let's, let's sit down, take the emotion out of it, which I know the book talks about, take away the people from the problem and let's just focus what's the ultimate goal what do we want to accomplish not what method you want to accomplish and what method i want to accomplish to attack the problem but what is the problem what problem do we want to solve starting there and then like kind of working backwards instead of think of a solution to uh, fix the problem what problem do we want to fix and go the other way do you find that phrase take the emotion out of it it's almost a judgment right when you use that phrase because by saying you're you're inferring that you're the logical one and you the person that you're talking to needs to take the emotion out of like you are being emotional i've always bristled at that phrase because the we we need to take the emotion out of it is always really it's a you need to take the emotion well i i feel like i have a good example (laughs) i think i had one uh i won't say who or what but a provider had been talking to other providers in their specialty and how they've heard of these poor situations where the GPM group practice manager messes up their templates, messes up their schedules. And they pretty much just taken those stories, amplified it and found other people that had other stories like that and have channeled it towards like us in our position going, we just hear all the time, GPMs mess up templates. I don't want you touching our templates. I don't want you near them. And they're like, whoa, whoa. Like I'm totally different situations, totally different base, totally different people. Like why, like I know there's a problem with the schedules, Let's not, you know, blame me because you hear everybody else blames GPMs and MSCs as the problem with their templates. Like, okay, what is the issue? Let's, and I guess I, I see what you're definitely saying, but I'll be like, okay, take your other stories, take your emotions out of that and what you know about GPMs. What is the problem with your schedule? Let's look at it and tackle it. But the way they came immediately straight dead on GPMs mess up my templates all the time. Well, hold on. Like, that's not, I mean, not our job. We don't, our job is not to mess up templates. Let's, let's figure out what the issue is and attack it head on. We're sitting here talking about this negotiating book, you know, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the default military response, right, is 
Well, chain of command. I outrank you. What I say goes. You know, Chris touched on it earlier with his uh, deployed commander. I tried negotiating with you, but now I'm I'm just going to say that this is this is the way that it is. And so many people lead from their rank, you know. And I I, I do it too at times for sure. But um, it's like, well, I'm I'm the major, so I get to decide. Debate over. So I, that's a funny statement. I actually had a commander that said that to me. Those those words. Well, I'm the commander. It's my turn, so it's my decision. And, and to be fair to to that commander, uh, I probably deserved that more than uh, he did my questioning of uh, his decisions. So I, th- I think, in all fairness, he handled it it very very delicately. I think he could have done a lot worse to me than he did. But it it highlights what what you said, Greg, and that you're you're a hundred percent right in that we we have that command authority, and and I think that that really changes a lot of how we we operate because at the end of the day, even as flight commanders, right, we we think that you know running this section and we own it, and we I mean really in in all honesty, we're just advisors to our squadron and group commanders. We we are yes the subject matter expert for that specific area. However, yeah, yeah. I see. Like Manoj is, we're not going to yeah. video. Manoj is here shaking his hand like. I yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. yeah very at me. Like, okay, Chris, I've seen you work. You're not really an expert. <laughs> he knows we're running. Okay, okay, I get it. We know we're running the show, right? I mean, uh, yeah, I I will say. I fight flight chiefs at our at our senior NCOs and our NCOs and our airmen are amazing, but. I will say I do find that argument when I know I hear it all the time. Like, why can't y'all just stay in one section and learn one section amazing and and just be the subject matter for that area? And then we have to like, as soon as we get comfortable, we move on to another section. And you're like, God, now I got to learn a whole new job. And then I haven't been in readiness in about seven years since I first started. And then I was about to go back to it, uh, but I'm not anymore. But I was like, oh, man, I've done this before. Yes. And I was like, oh, wait, it's been a minute. Things have probably changed since I'm going to have to start over and learn it again. And I was like, man, if I just could just stay in one job. And I mean, how I wonder what that would be like to stay in one job and just work at it the whole time, like almost every other AFSC does. So I've got this fun job in systems that you can come do. And except that one. It except seems that one. like they're not the, everything but every, anything but systems. No. So, you know, I mean, I'll. I'll I'll answer your question now, you know, because when I joined, I was, you know, I came in as a BMET and I did that for eight years and three different, uh, three different bases and a, and a deployment. And it was the same job everywhere. And it was horrible, at least for me. So, and I get, I get motivation and I, you know, kind of keep that drive, you know, that fire burning, if it, if you will, by, changing jobs frequently like at two years i'm kind of like oh man i'm I, i've kind of learned everything that i'm going to learn here so i'm ready to move on you know i get that itch like are there any other opportunities for me yeah. you know and so at least me for my my personality and 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 my approach is you know i was so bored as a bmet it helps that i also was not a good bmet you know, I was a, probably a liability uh, for the most part, but I wasn't expecting it from the medical service corps when I uh, when I commissioned. Honestly, I didn't really know what to expect at that point. But one thing that I've I've really enjoyed, at least in the last you know twelve years that I've been doing this, has been the variety 
And, you know, I, I went the first, what, 10 years of my career and I never worked the same functional area twice. It was like one and done for every area. And that was either because, you know, they didn't like me and never wanted me back or, or, you know, just the luck of the draw. I'll leave it to, to those, those commanders we were talking about earlier to decide which one, which one of those. <laughs> I will say I said six different areas. There's legitimately more. I mean, there's a bunch of staff jobs. There's HSA instructors. There's AFPC. There's a lot more jobs. And yeah, a hundred percent. Don't bring up. Don't bring up HSA instructors. It's still a sore spot for Chris. <laughs> well, I gotta it. put I'm over I gotta it, put right? I, I'm done. I gotta on. put good juju in the air for me. I, I have to I have to get those vibes out there now. But no, I agree. I, I do enjoy working in a bunch of different areas. It's like learning something new every time. It's fresh, it's it keeps things interesting. Uh, if my job wasn't interesting, I probably would have been out by now. Uh, but I, I come across a new a new problem, I would say, every every day, every base, every month. There's just something new, either to learn to become a better MSC or to learn to become a better uh, leader. Uh, that comes with experience and rank. And I know me and Chris have the next one coming up here, hopefully, knock on wood, all the wood, all the wood everywhere, in <laughs> uh, and, and about a year or two, and that's going to come with with its own set of challenges and opportunities, I'm sure at the negotiating level, at least. Well, you hit on um, I th- one thing that I think is a core competency for the medical service corps, which is learning how to learn or being efficient at getting up to speed in a new area or a new job is, you know, when you're only going to do something for 18 to 24 months, you can't spend six months figuring out which way is up. You don't have the time. And so you have to be, you have to go, go into a new job with a strategy of where are my resources? What do I know? What do I not know? Who, who, who to call in, in, in the event of this activity, call this person. And ask the right questions early. And I, I think like, as, at least as, as I've gone on, that's been something I've been trying to be more deliberate about in the recent years is being better at getting at least functional sooner. Yeah, asking the right questions early is, is definitely something I've learned. Sometimes I just ask the basic question. I'm sure other people have looked at me going like, have you not like read the first line of the AFI? I'm like, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, there was more. It's just... That's how I was starting. That's how I was starting negotiating. I need to get to the uh, get to that end. But uh, I'm about to go into my sixth area as an MSC, and I, it's RMO, and I've never done RMO. So again, I'm I'm a little nervous that I you know never done it, and I'm about to be a senior captain. But I think I've surrounded myself with enough people, which is what I think as MSCs we got to and officers in general got to do early on: surround yourself with the right people that you can ask stupid questions, and you won't be embarrassed by. One thing that I, I think is good, uh, good strategy in here that that at least in in negotiating with the kids, I've I've tried to think about is going into discussion without you know with, you know being open to a completely alternative solution. Like you you have your idea of what the answer is or what the outcome is, and then you're anticipating what the response is going to be from you know the other party. But trying to remain open to that third novel idea that isn't even on isn't on either of ours radar, I think is is a good thing. It just ties in with like a lot of the other professional reading that I've done about you know not going into conversation, not going into situations with preconceived notions of how it needs to 
play out and just being open to, you know, hey, this person that you're talking with or this group that you're talking with or maybe the airmen that you lead, they have ideas, they're smart, they they know what's going on um, and being open to those novel approaches that you wouldn't have come up with otherwise. Anyway, so that was my last bit about the book. That I, I, I liked that that was a deliberate point the author's name well listener the book was getting to yes by roger fisher and william Uri. Uri, but it is on brigadier general flowers reading list and uh i know he has that published out there on the bluff uh and some other uh sites so check it out and hopefully we will get to our second episode at some point with the next book we'll announce it and if anybody would like to be a guest uh, on our show to talk about the book please do so if you want to read it go for it if you've already read it hope you remember it so then you can come and talk to us about it what well, is I the guess... next book uh that's a good question i'm going to throw out uh atomic habits by james clear atomic habits by james clear okay all right full disclosure i've already read it twice but great you'll I mean... lead the discussion <clears throat> yep all right. it, it was good enough to read twice. I'm excited, honestly, about the opportunity to read it a third time uh, because I usually pick up something new each time. Anyway, so Atomic Habits by James Clear is the or the April book of the month to be talked about, you know, at the end of the month. And Chris, I will send you the two-page executive summary just in advance <laughs> this time. So you can really Thank study. You. Thank you. Thank you. Time for unpopular opinion. All right, for the listeners out there, the pregame, the pregame <laughs> conversation was about dual BH. And we'd love and... to know your thoughts, listeners. So you know, write us <laughs> with with the email that we now. have not provided. We have Are we taking provided. callers? Are we taking callers? Do we have a phone line? A... I don't think we need to get a sponsor first. We can afford a phone line for this. All right, so I'll I'll, I'll take the unpopular opinion for uh, for this month. And, you know, we're, we're building this plane as we fly it here. All right. So I'll, I'll start with the caveat that I think that all up and down and across the military, you know, we work really hard. And a lot of times uh, we do, we work for under the amount that we should really should be compensated for the level of responsibility and the, and the workload that we, that we take on. And so I'm all in favor of people getting as much money from the government as as they can as they're entitled to with that caveat being said bah is an allowance to provide for housing and dual military people that cohabitate in the same house do not need two bahs to uh, uh, obtain that housing and uh to counter any argument that might be out there about you know how expensive housing is right and that you know that income, you know, say for like a captain who married a major who's a doctor and, you know, they might be collecting some sweet dual mill uh, BAH. Here. Who's that? Uh, I, we need to find that person there. That sounds like I a lucky no dude idea. right there. I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, you know, I'm not anticipating money woes in their near future, you know, with at least when it comes to housing. But if housing is expensive, expensive enough that, dual mill couples say like I need dependent rate BH and a single rate BH in order to afford housing. Then what about, you know, so the other people have to live in shacks or get 
roommates is you know like a married couple they have to bring in a roommate in order to afford housing say in a place like andrews or uh travis or san antonio from what i'm hearing anyway so i i think that the entitlement is crap and everybody should just be paid uh more in line with you know reasonable secure safe housing in whatever locality that they're at and that should be uh, more flexible, but the dual BH thing is just extra change in the pocket of those people that um, that isn't really being used for housing. I will say, just, opinion. just for a fact, I think I read online, I'm looking up stuff, about 7% of all active duty military members uh, make up dual military couples. So about 7% of people get dual BAH. So it sounds like the the common man or woman out there is left to stare at these bourgeoisie, you know, these bougie dual mill couples living high on things like taking their their Disney cruise every spring break and you know throwing throwing, driving their Model X Teslas to work, all that, you know, I see how it is. I think this is the point in the show where we say the ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of our employers. Something, something, something. But I would uh, I would dissent from your uh, unpopular opinion, Greg. Uh, I I stand on the other side of the fence. I think that I I understand your point of view that as an entitlement um, that it it is an entitlement and it's not necessarily part of our our base pay. Because I had heard a counter argument to that once before, and that and and the person making the counter argument saying, "Well, why don't we just do away with those entitlements and just you know make everything just one." you know, increase the base pay for everybody. It's just about, you know, rank and then you're responsible for housing. And I don't agree with that method or approach either, because quite honestly, I uh, enjoy the non-taxable benefit. Um, I mean, it greatly reduces our taxable income. So that, that to me, there's an advantage there. Um, but, but I think that, you know, e- each person is entering the military individually. And even if they are married before they enter the military and, and they, as, as uh, um, spouses agree to join together. I still believe that as individuals, they should be entitled to those benefits because it just seems to me that somebody in that same situation, right. Would be, you know, let, let's just say a, a master sergeant, right. Same time and grade, same rank, same location. One's married, one's not. One of them is actually making significantly less for doing in essence, the same job as the one that's that's uh, not married. If you take away the the dual entitlement, agree a hundred percent. I feel like you're right. You know, I'm not mill to mill either. So you know, it's always like, man, that is some sweet money that you're getting. But I, again, you know, they're they're both put on the uniform, so I think that it is an entitlement. So, well, hey, I'm not joining a picket line anytime soon. <laughs> you know? Look, I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> Again, you know, I've, I've, I've gotten a lot from the military, you know, in, in assignments and degrees and interesting TDYs, all sorts of stuff. So, you know, I mean, I'm not going to hate on the individuals <laughs> who are collecting the money, but I think as a, as a policy, it's, it can be divisive. And, and we, we you know, mm-hmm. like you said about, about, you know, moving the the money that is allocated for bh into the base pay for people and then just having you know like one pay without all these additional income streams i i think you know 
this is this is a this is a pay structure that that should change at some point in time in the future, and I would look forward to that change. Make it all tax free. Hey, hey, now we're talking. Yeah. Now we're talking. All right, you see, that's not a popular opinion right there. That's a no. That's now, a, that's a we found a common interest. <laughs> we have all found an interest, right? So we're just oh, tying this up together. Way to bring that together. Oh man. <laughs> And on that note, <laughs> that's point number three on the back cover. That's how Chris was able to mention. It. Yeah, work together yeah. to find right here, creative and ready to go. <laughs> work together to find creative and fair opinions. Outstanding. All right, gentlemen. Well, that was getting to yes, negotiating agreement without giving in, with several uh, asides and branches and and uh, rabbit holes. But we hope you enjoyed the conversation, and we look forward to connecting with you next time. We look, we, yeah, we, we greatly appreciate feedback. If you guys have several topics that you want us to talk about that are not pertaining to the book, anything in the MSC world, the Air Force officer world, the DHA world, let us know. We'll give you our either popular or unpopular opinion about it, and we can move forward from there. Thanks, you. Have a nice day.